Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, as we've now read your word, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be obedient to your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be a people who receive your word with gladness, recognizing that your word is a lamp to our feet and it's a light unto our path, recognizing that your word is alive and it's active that's powerful and it's transformative in our lives. Lord, we pray that we would be a people who eagerly listen to your word as it's read and as it's taught this morning. And God, we pray that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds so that we can grasp what it is that you're saying. And then, Lord, that you would empower us to apply these things to our lives so that we might honor and glorify you our God and our creator, and so that we might live at harmony with one another. Lord, bless our time now in this extremely important passage, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So I don't have a clever title for this morning's sermon, and that's basically because some titles shouldn't be messed with. So I titled today's sermon, The Ten Commandments, Part one. Anybody want to take a stab at next week's title? Brilliant. Amazing. We're all paying attention. 
I think it would be fitting for us to do what we've been doing in our series through Exodus, which is practice the Ten Commandments, because we're studying them here today. We've been trying to lodge these into our memory so that we're a people who know the Ten Commandments by heart and can bring them to our attention at all times. This is God's top ten list, so to speak, so it would make sense for us as children of God to have these commandments memorized. So we're going to put them on the screen here, and I'll read it, and then if you would recite it after me, uh, we'll work our way through the Ten Commandments together. So commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Number three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord. Number four, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Number five, honor your father and mother. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not give false testimony. And number 10, you shall not covet. Amen. There's the Ten Commandments. So a lot of people look at the Ten Commandments as God's rule list that you have to keep in order to be a Christian or in order to make God happy with you. So being a Christian then, when people see it this way, is you're the person who follows all of these rules. Now, of course, no one is perfect, but if you do a pretty good job, then God is probably happy with you. If you break these commandments a lot, then you're not a Christian. In that way, many people look at the Ten Commandments here in Exodus chapter 20, sort of like a divine job review. God uses it to look at you and evaluate your performance and decide whether you get to stay on the team or whether you get fired and kicked out of the family. Now, of course, if you start the Ten Commandments in verse 3, it's easy to see why people would think that way. It goes, you shall, you shall, you shall. It sounds an awful lot like, do this, do that, do this. However, if we read the Ten Commandments in context by backing up to the preface of verses 1 and 2, we start to see that the Ten Commandments are actually fundamentally different from that. Look again at Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Church, this is so significant because before God ever tells his people to do anything with the Ten Commandments or these ten great rules, God starts by reminding his people of what he has already done for them. I am the Lord, your God, he says, who delivered you out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of a place of bondage and misery and suffering. And see, we have to be reminded this morning as we approach the Ten Commandments of the great truth that the message of salvation from cover to cover of the Bible is not a message of do this and live. 
It is rather a message of, here's what I have done for you, and therefore live like this. In other words, God's message to us is, you've been set free, and now I want you to live free. And that's how the commandments of God function throughout Scripture. Again, not as a way of us trying to posture before the Lord or earn His graces or earn His favor, but rather as a way of living a new kind of life that God has called us to. Jesus called it abundant life. Life as it was really meant to be lived. Life in right relationship with our Creator, right relationship with our neighbors, right relationship even with all of creation itself. Sometimes this understanding of the way that the law works in the Christian life is called grace-motivated obedience. Grace-motivated obedience. Yes, God is calling us to be an obedient people. Yes, God is even threatening consequences when we're disobedient. But the reason why we obey, the motivation for why we obey is because we have experienced God's grace. We're not obeying necessarily out of fear of God. We're we're obeying God's commands out of love for God because of what he has done for us. Church, this is the pattern that you see everywhere in the New Testament. Consider the book of Romans. The book of Romans is 16 chapters long. The Apostle Paul spends chapters 1 through 11 plumbing the depths of the gospel message of all that God has done in Christ to save you and the new life God has given to you in the Spirit. And it's only in chapter 12 where the Apostle Paul now turns a corner and starts actually calling us to live a certain way. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, here's the turn in the book of Romans. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Can you go back to verse 1 really quick on the screen here? Church, notice with me what he anchors the appeal He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. So he's saying, look, everything I just unpacked for you in chapters 1 through 11, God's mercy toward you in Christ. Based on that, I'm appealing to you to now go and live a certain way. To offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to that good, gracious, merciful God. Not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewal of your mind. Well, pastor, that's Romans. That's like really, really gospel-centered. Well, here's Ephesians. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. The Apostle Paul is unpacking the glories of the gospel for three consecutive chapters. And then halfway through the book, he turns a corner. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He begins with God's grace toward us in Christ, and then he calls us to live a life of obedience. A third example is in the book of Colossians. He begins in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, past tense, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 
For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So Paul's talking about this new life that we have in Christ. And then after that, he immediately gets into some practical instruction where he says, now put off that old man, put off that old woman, Stop living your former ways in sin and now start putting on all of these new attributes that we're called to live in in Christ. The point that I'm making to you is that the New Testament is constantly appealing to us to live a life of obedience, not to earn God's favor, but in response to God's favor. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, whether you were six years old and you prayed a prayer or whether it was last week or whether it happens this morning, the moment you put your faith in Jesus, you have God's favor. He is pleased with you and you cannot change that. So the 10 commandments are not like a job review with your boss. Get that out of your mind. That's not what this is. It's not an evaluation to see whether you stay on the team or not. It's a lot more like house rules that are being laid down by a gracious father. You know, when you have little children, you have lots and lots of rules. As your kids get older, you have less rules usually. But when they're really little, you have lots and lots of rules around the house. Don't touch the stove, it's hot. You smack their little hand away. Don't put things in the light sockets, you're gonna electrocute yourself. Chew your food really, really good before you swallow because you're gonna choke. We were just having that conversation last night about grapes with Jace. And you know, the funny thing is when you're a little kid, it feels really restrictive. Oh, dad's just out to ruin my day. Dad's out to ruin my fun. Why can't I ride the bike down the street? Why can't I cross the street without looking both ways and chase down my baseball? But obviously all of those commands, all of those rules are coming from a heart that loves my children, that wants to protect my children. If you touch the hot stove, son, it's going to burn you. If you cross the street without looking both ways, a car might hit you. We're doing all of that because we love our children. And what's more is, guess what? If my child touches a hot stove, do I send them to outer Siberia and kick them out of the family? Is that what happens when they break one commandment? Of course not. Because I'm a father and they're my children, even when they break the rules. They don't get kicked out of the family. They are members of my family and I'm trying to help them understand as they grow up, All of dad's rules, at least most of them, (laughs) are good and smart and wise and they exist for your blessing. Church, we have a perfectly good, wise, omnipotent God in heaven who is our father. And all of his rules are for our good to bless us and to help us live life the way it is meant to be lived. We cannot fail to see this. This has to be the framework now by which we enter in to the Ten Commandments. Our good Father in heaven is saying, live this way and you will flourish. Okay, we all got that? We're all on the same page here? Okay, amen. So today we're going to handle Commandments 1 through 4. What we've been describing in this series as the vertical commandments. And what we mean by that is Commandments 1 through 4 are dealing specifically with our relationship with God, our vertical alignment. Next week, we're going to cover commandments 5 through 10, which we've been saying deal with our horizontal relationships, one with another. We're getting this distinction, vertical relationship and horizontal relationship from Jesus's twofold distinction in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. 
In this passage, Jesus is summing up the entire law when he says this. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus is boiling the law down and he's saying, love God and love people. Commandments one through four are are there to help us to love God properly. What does it mean to love God? It means a lot of things. But one of the things that we can't, we can't allow ourselves to not see is that the primary way that we display our love to God or show that we truly love God is through our obedience to his word. Right? Because at the end of the day, if you really love someone and you really trust someone, you're going to take them at their word. And you're going to do the things that you know they want you to do. And you're going to trust that the things that they want for you are actually good for you. And so obeying God is at the heart of loving and trusting him. This is why in John 14, 15, Jesus could say, If you love me, you will obey my commands. Tony Morita writes, My love for God is reflected by my obedience to his words. Now again, please notice what I am saying. I'm not saying that God's love for you is somehow based on your obedience. That's not what I'm saying. Your acceptance before God is completely dependent on what he has done for you. It's not dependent on meeting some list of expectations. It's based on grace. But what I'm saying is that our love for God is reflected in our obedience. When we live obedient lives, it's us saying, God, I love you. God, I trust you. God, I am honoring you with the life that you have given me. So friends, how are you doing with that? How are we doing with that? Are our lives saying to God with the way that we're living, I love you, I trust you, because we are seeking to obey him from our hearts. Well, let's begin unpacking these 10 commandments so that we can better obey the Lord and thus show our love for him more effectively. Commandment number one, because it's first, we should understand this as the most important commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. This is verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. The Israelites had just been delivered out of the land of many, many, many different gods and deities. The Egyptians, as we've talked about, worshiped all sorts of different deities. And so God says right up front, guys, let's get this straight. Guys, let's make sure that we're all clear on this. Those are not your gods. I alone am your God. All of those gods in Egypt are not gods. Remember what I did with the plagues. Remember what I did to Pharaoh. I punked all of their gods and they couldn't do anything about it. Okay, I am God. Those are all fake gods. 
So you shall have no other gods before me. Don't love those gods. Don't serve those gods. Don't worship those gods. Don't put your trust in those gods because you will be let down just like the Egyptians. In short, God is saying in the first commandment, do not put anything or anyone in my place in your life. I am God. I'm in a league of my own. I'm the only one who can deliver you. I'm the only one who can help you. I created you. Let's get first things first. Now, it's worth noting in a culture like ours that God doesn't begin with you. He begins with himself. That God doesn't start by looking at his people and orienting them around themselves. God is saying, you're not the center of the universe. I am. I alone am God. You are not. He is the center of the universe. And therefore, God is demanding to be at the center of your life. And church, if we're going to get anything else right in obeying God and in honoring God, we have to get this one right. We have to be a people who are worshiping the one true God and him alone, the God who has saved us. How would a person know if they're breaking the first commandment? Because it sounds all well and nice. Okay, I just need, I need to worship God alone. How would we know if we're not doing that very well? Thomas Watson, who was a Puritan pastor from a few hundred years ago, offers two questions in his sermon on the first commandment that are very helpful. The first question is this. He asks, what do you love the most? Stop and think about that. What do I love the most? There's a lot of different ways we could answer that. For some people, what they love most is they love another person, perhaps a family member. Jesus, of course, told us in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, that doesn't sound very Christian, does it? What Jesus is saying here is that our love for God is supposed to be supremely greater than our love for any other person. Of course, everywhere in Scripture, God is commanding us to love our family and to love our neighbors, so we know that he's not truly calling us to hate them. What he is trying to say, though, is that we have to get first things first. It is God first in our life, and because of our love for God and his love for us, we're then going to be able to love our families and love our neighbors well. But some people, when you ask the question, what do you love the most? It is that little kid that rules their universe. They love that child more than anything. Or they love that spouse more than anything, including God. For others, their answer to what do you love the most might be money. 1 Timothy 6.10 warns us against this. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And of course, there are many people in affluent societies like ours who their whole world revolves around money. They love it. It's their passion. It's the thing that wakes them up every day. It's the thing that they dream about every night. Every waking hour is aimed at more money. And for many people, it's so they can get more possessions. Remember the rich young ruler. He met with Jesus. What do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus is looking into this man's heart and goes, hmm. The problem with a guy like this is not that he has a lot of possessions. The problem with a guy like this is that his possessions have him. 
And so Jesus looks at him and he says, okay, here's the thing that you lack. Go and sell everything that you have and give your money to the poor and come follow me. In other words, Jesus is trying to get first things first with this man. Get rid of the other God in your life, your possessions, and follow me. Make me number one in your life. And we read this tragic verse in Mark 10, 22. It says of the rich young ruler, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Translation, he loved his stuff more than he loved the Savior. This poor man was face to face with God incarnate. And Jesus is giving him the invitation of a lifetime. Come follow after me. And he looks at that. And he looks at his things. And he goes after his things. Many people, their true love is their things. Finally, for some, it could be pleasure. King Solomon lived a season of his life this way. You've heard of a treasure hunt. Solomon was on a pleasure hunt. Here's Ecclesiastes 2.10. Listen to this verse. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. He says, but behold, this also was vanity. In other words, anything I thought would make me happy, anything I thought would satisfy me, I went after it full bore, 100%. And I got it. And I did it. And I did that thing. And he says, but it was all vanity. None of it satisfied him. And ultimately, he came back at the end of Ecclesiastes back to God as the source of his happiness. So what do you love most? The second question that Thomas Watson asks is what do you trust? What do you trust? What is the thing that you go to in your moments of need in your life that you look to as your safety net, as you look to as the thing that can deliver you from life's problems? Again, for many people, the answer is riches. That explains why some people, again, are so after the money. For some, it's, it's not, I'm getting this stuff so I can have all these possessions, although a lot of people are that way. For other people, it's, I'm getting all this money so I can have security, so I can have control. So if anything hits me, if the stock market crashes, well, I have these other investments over here. And then if something happens in this country, I've got a property in that country. And it's all a strategic thing to shield themselves from all of the crises of life. And that money, their riches are the thing that they are trusting in to be their deliverance. Ecclesiastes 10.19 says, money answers everything. It's a bit of an exaggeration, but there are people who really believe that and they live that way. For other people, their trust is in a person. It's a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, another family member, somebody else. That's the person that they always think, well, they can get me out of the bind. They can help me. They'll deliver me. For others, they trust in their own wisdom. Maybe you've done a good job in your life up to this point of manipulating situations to get the ends, achieve the ends that you want. Maybe your own cleverness has allowed you to sort of get through life and do the things that you want to do. And there are people who trust in their own wisdom as the thing that can deliver them. Let me add real briefly two other questions you could ask yourself if you're trying to discern, am I really worshiping God alone? Is he number one in my life? Question three would be, who or what do you live for? What do you live for? What are you getting out of bed for every morning? What is the thing that you want more than anything else in this life? If I could just achieve that, if I could just get this, if I could just do that, everything would be good in my life. 
What is it that you're living for? And then finally, who or what can you not live without? It's basically the reverse of the last question. If you're struggling to answer the question, what am I living for? Who or what can you not live without? You'll hear people talk that way sometimes. If I lost X, Y, or Z, life would no longer be worth living. If I lost X, Y, or Z, that would be the end of me. Those things, these questions can help us to really get at what's going on in our hearts. Do we have other gods before him? Or can we, like so many saints of old, from Job to Paul to many others, conclude that as long as I have him, I have enough. I have enough. Commandment number two, you shall not make any carved images. Or some translations, an idol. You shall have no idols. Now, a lot of us, of course, are like, idols, don't struggle with that, not an issue. This commandment, of course, is closely related to the first one. Idolatry was rampant in the ancient world. There were idols everywhere. In fact, lots of people had their own personal statues or idols in their own house that they would bow down to, that they would worship in front of. An idol is a physical representation of a deity. It bears its image. It's a physical way to imagine that the deity's presence is with you. And in some ways, commandment two is actually just an extension of commandment number one. Again, the commandment number one is don't have any other gods before me. And it's almost like God saying, and so just in case y'all are unclear about this, don't make any idols. Don't have any idols. Don't worship any idols. Now, of course, we know Israel is going to do a complete face plant on this in Exodus 32. I mean, literally the hand of God is writing these on a tablet on, the, on Mount Sinai. And before Moses can even come back down to give these great commandments to the people and say, look guys, here's number one and here's number two. When they come back down from the mountain, they hear a party going on and all of the Israelites are having a drunken orgy in front of a big golden calf, which Aaron, the wonderful priest he was at this point in his career, was saying to the children of Israel, behold your gods who delivered you out of Egypt. It's amazing. It's remarkable. And so, again, this is closely related. God is clarifying. Listen, I'm saying don't make any idols. Don't have any idols. Don't worship any idols. It's a ban on propping up other things, created things, as our God. John Calvin, the great reformer, called the human heart an idol factory. What he understood, and what hopefully we all understand, is that human beings have a a propensity to prop up just about anything as an idol in our lives. We start attaching God-like significance to all sorts of things, like the things I was just talking about, things like money or possessions or other people or pleasure. And we start looking to those things as our idols, the things that we're worshiping, the things that we're getting our sense of significance and meaning and joy and security from. And so God is saying we should have none of those things. We constantly, I think, as people knowing that our hearts are idol factories, we have to be evaluating what am I investing my time and my talent and my treasure into most? Because if you can look at the thing that your time is going to, 
that your talents are going to, that your treasures are going to the most in your life, you're going to have a pretty good beat on what your God or who your God actually is. But probably commandment two is dealing more specifically with making idols, not that represent other deities, but that actually represent Yahweh, the true God himself. Again, that was the problem in Exodus 32. They're going to Well, where is God? We don't see him. He's been gone for 40 days with Moses. We need to have gods to go before us. So Aaron do something and he takes all the jewelry and he throws it in the fire. And in his own words, out popped the golden calf. One of the worst excuses in human history. Um, But they needed this physical presence of God right in front of them to feel like God was really with them. So they were trying to make an idol of Yahweh, the God who had delivered them out of Egypt. And so probably this is a ban on doing that. Why would God put a ban on making physical representations of him? Well, first of all, God is spirit. Scripture is very clear about that. God is spirit. So any physical representation that you try to make of God would fall miserably short. We have no way of knowing what God actually looks like and somehow taking a physical object and then fashioning that into God's image. Listen to Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 18. Moses there says, Therefore watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Notice what he's saying. When God spoke to you, you didn't see him. You saw no form. God is spirit. So he says, take care because you saw no form when God spoke to you. In verse 16, he says, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of a male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. Moses is saying, look, don't use anything in creation to try to depict God. Because anything that you create, any physical thing you create is going to be slanderous against God because that's not what he actually looks like. The second reason for this ban on trying to create something in God's image, a physical representation of the deity, is because, listen very closely, God has already embedded his image in the physical creation. And he did it in you and in me. This is insane. Think about this. And I'm not just saying you and me as the only two. I'm saying within humanity, God already embedded his creation with a physical representation of himself. In the Genesis account, what does God say? He says, let us make them in our own image. In our own image. Human beings are the physical representations of God that he has created. Therefore, any attempt where we're taking physical things and we're trying to represent God is an affront to God's dignity and also an affront to man's. You and I are God's image in the world. Shouldn't shock us then that when God wanted the fullness of his revelation to come, And when God entered into creation itself, he did so in the form of man. Jesus, 
God the Son became man. And we're told in the New Testament that he is the image of the invisible God, that he's the exact imprint. He is the full representation of who God is. And so we need to be reminded that the one true God is not honored by trees or rocks or precious metals being fashioned in some unique way. The one true God is honored by his image bearers, you and me, being fashioned in a unique way. What is that unique way? Into the very image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect image of God. And that ought to be our heart's aim and desire. Commandment number three, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Now, I think this is sort of a confusing commandment for a lot of people. It certainly means don't use God's name as a cuss word, which is the way that many people understand this commandment. Oh, taking God's name in vain means swearing and using God's name there. It certainly means that. It would include that. But it really goes much further than that. What, what the commandment is getting at is that you and I should be a people who never use God's name in a trifling manner at all. There are some names that are so sacred, that are so important, that they deserve to be reserved to be used with honor at all times. Jesus offers us the antidote to this commandment in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 9. He teaches us to pray this way, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, or let your name be holy. Let your name be set apart from all the other common names in the world. Now, many of you know this, but the Jews took this commandment, commandment number three, so seriously and so literally that eventually they stopped writing the name of God and they stopped speaking the name of God. That's why even today, nobody knows how you pronounce Yahweh. That's a guess. Nobody knows because it has fallen into disuse in the Hebrew language for millennia. And because in the ancient Hebrew language, they use no vowels, just consonants. So it's Y-H-W-H. And we're just guessing now when we say Yahweh, nobody knows the divine name because the Jews wouldn't even say it. Because they were fearful that they might use it in a way that violated command number three. They thought that God was so mighty, that God was so awesome, that he deserved his name to be used with reverence. People can use God's name in vain in many ways today. One of the most popular probably is by speaking falsely on God's behalf. We call this false prophecy. Jeremiah 14, 14 warns against this. And the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies, look at this, in my name. He says, I did not send them, nor did I command them to speak. Well, this still happens today. People misspeak on behalf of the Lord. They falsely prophesy. It happens in churches, of course. That's why we always need to test what we hear, even in churches, especially in churches, by the written word of God. But it's not just pastors and churches that can break the third commandment in this way. Anyone can do it. People, a lot of times, will do this to boost their own credibility. They'll speak to one another and say, you know, the Lord told me to say this to you. And they speak words that they're trying to basically say have the same weight or the same authority as Scripture itself. Ladies, maybe you've had a man say to you, the Lord told me you're supposed to marry me. <laughs> I've had that. I've had a girl tell me that some guy in the college ministry I used to pastor told her that. 
And I wanted to grab the guy and strangle him and choke him because all of a sudden this otherwise godly girl was kind of confused. She was like, well, if God said it, what am I supposed to do with that? You're supposed to run from that. That's what you're supposed to do with that. Why would a guy ever do that? Because again, he thinks it boosts his own credibility. The Lord told me to say this to you. It's not just about who you should marry. People say these things all the time. People walk around churches or around Christian subculture and they try to come off as if they're some prophet of the Lord and tell you things about your life. And this, thus saith the Lord, we have to be careful of those kinds of things. But there's something more that's implied here in the third commandment that a lot of Bible commentators pick up on. Ladies, when you take a man's name in marriage, what does that mean? It means that you're joined to him and it means that your life and his life are inseparably wrapped together. And get this, this is so significant. From that day forward when you're married, if you were to bring shame on your own name, it simultaneously brings shame on his name. Of course, it works the other way around too. If the husband brings shame on the family name, it impacts the wife. Listen, church, the same is true of God. Now that you and I have taken the name of God, we are his people, we bear the name of Christ, we're Christians, we ought not to take his name in vain. We ought to do everything in our power to live up to his name, to not run the name of God through the mud. As Paul puts it, we already read this in Ephesians 4.1, we ought to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So how are you doing at not taking the Lord's name in vain? Maybe a better question is, what might need to change in your life to bring your life into alignment with the high calling that you have as the bride of Christ? Okay, fourth and finally, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For six days we should work, but on the seventh day we should rest. This is why every Saturday the Jews would rest from all of their work so that they could worship. Because it's not just rest that's in mind with the Sabbath church. Sure, God wanted us to rest because you and I are not machines. Okay, we need to rest. We need to recharge. We need to reboot. But it wasn't just rest that God had in mind with the Sabbath. It was rest and worship. You'll remember from chapter 16 that when God was feeding them with manna in the wilderness, on the sixth day they were to gather twice as much food so that way on the seventh day they could rest. They could Sabbath. They could sit and feast and worship without being distracted by other things. Now in the Old Testament, the penalty for breaking the Sabbath was severe. In fact, you would be put to death for breaking the Sabbath. And because of this, over time, the Jews began developing stricter and stricter restrictions on the Sabbath to the point that by the time Jesus was walking the earth, for the normal Jew, the Sabbath had become a burden instead of a blessing. And God always intended this to be a blessing for his people. But there were so many regulations that it became a burden that the Jews couldn't even live under. And this is why ultimately Jesus would come and intentionally violate the Sabbath laws, at least as they had been developed at that time, to expose how off track the Jews had gotten with this commandment. And all of this was to make the point that Jesus makes in Mark 2.27 where he says, the Sabbath was made for man and not the man for the Sabbath. In other words, God made the Sabbath as a gift for you. 
You're the more important thing in God's economy. Sabbath is not. That's supposed to be a gift to you. God developed it for you. He didn't create you just to honor a Sabbath as some arbitrary thing. I think the question that most Christians have when you read commandment number four is, what about us? Are we supposed to be keeping the Sabbath? Because like we're not here on Saturday and we're not stopping all work and activity every Saturday like the Jews did. To answer that question, consider Paul's words in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. He writes, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It seems then that we're not called to observe the Sabbath, meaning resting on Saturday, but it does seem that we should observe the principle of the Sabbath. He's not saying anything about the Sabbath being bad. He's just saying, don't let anybody judge you if your Sabbath was a different day, if you were resting on a different day. It doesn't need to be on Saturday. But we see here in the Ten Commandments that the Sabbath is actually anchored in God's activity in creation. He worked for seven days and then he rested. And so based on God's example of work and rest, God is providing a rhythm of life for all of us as his children to live in. You and I would do well to honor the principle of the Sabbath, to not become people who on one hand are workaholics and work seven days a week and don't allow our bodies to recharge and don't allow our spirits to reconnect with the Lord and to refocus. We should be a people who honor this principle and Christians for 2,000 years have chosen to primarily do that on Sunday as a day of rest, a day to worship. Obviously, people can err in either direction here. You can become a workaholic, which the Sabbath prevents, but you could also become a freeloader. God doesn't want that. He says, six days you shall work, and on the seventh day you shall rest. It's a beautiful picture of balance so that we can be a people who are productive, but that also rest well and are refreshed. So, how are you doing with the Sabbath? Are you a person who's honoring this principle that God has set forth in creation? Where God is saying, look, you're not a machine. You can't just go on and on and on. You have to rest. And more importantly, you need to realign your heart with me on a weekly rhythm with my people and my word constantly. You can see then why these commandments are vertical, commandments one through four. All four of the things we just talked about are dealing with our relationship with God. We're making him first. We're not forming any idols. We're a people who are honoring his name through the things we say and the way we live. And we're a people who are constantly resting so that we can recharge and worship the one true God. And what's amazing is as we begin to get these first four commandments right, the next six flow out rather naturally. But as I said earlier, the good news is that we don't become God's people by our obedience to the law. So even though as we're faithful to these things, it honors God, it blesses God, and it blesses us, these things are not the basis of our acceptance before God. Our acceptance is solely based on God's mercy and God's grace. And so we should end now where we began. We should be a people who are able to say like the Israelites, 
that he is our God who delivered us from slavery. He is our God who has set us free. And therefore, our hearts are desiring to now live free. And God is giving us a blueprint for that all the way back in Exodus 20. A life ordered by the commands of God is a life of true freedom. It is life in abundance. Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful for your law. Lord, we understand that, again, your law is a gift. This is why the saints of old could say that your, your word was sweet to the taste. That your word was the delight of their life because your word is meant to give us life and to guide us into blessing, into a right relationship with you and with one another. And Lord, we're thankful for your word. But God, we are also thankful that even though your word is a constant guide to us and a blessing to us, Lord, we're thankful that our obedience to your word is not what brings us salvation. We're so thankful that you saved us because of your grace and mercy. Just as you saved Israel from slavery in Egypt, they did nothing. You stepped down and you destroyed Egypt in the Red Sea and you brought your people through supernaturally on dry ground. And all that they had to do was trust you. Lord, it's the same for us. You came to us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, fully God, fully man, to live the life that we couldn't live and to die on the cross for our sins where you destroyed our enemy of sin and you triumphed over Satan and all the powers of darkness. And three days later, you rose from the grave, conquering even death, our greatest enemy of all. And all we have to do to experience your great salvation, to experience the life everlasting that you offer is turn to you and believe. To put you first in our life, to say no to these lesser idols, to follow you with all of our hearts, trusting that you are God and that you are good. Lord, thank you for this good news. Help us now to live in light of these commands, to do so with great joy. And Lord, we pray that as we're doing this, you'd be glorified, we'd be blessed, and that the watching world around us would be attracted to the life that you have called us to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.